Our text this morning is Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 8. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city, how much Jesus had done for him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Heavenly Father, we ask, O Lord, that you would use your word, that you would use your word powerfully in our lives, not just to teach us, O Lord, but to change us, to convict us of sin, to encourage us and to give us hope. This we ask 
in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is a fascinating story, isn't it? It is the second of three miracle stories that Luke gives to us in chapter 8. We looked two weeks ago at a miracle that our Lord did in showing His power over nature, instilling the storm that had arisen on the Sea of Galilee. And this morning we look at our Lord performing another miracle of power, that is of power over evil. This set of miracles that Luke gives to us is purposeful. Remember, Luke is setting out an orderly account for us that we might learn all that we need to know about Jesus and salvation. And this plan that Luke has is especially helpful for us today in our modern age. For you see, we have become a people that doubt the power of Jesus. We doubt that Jesus can do what we long for Him to do. We doubt that Jesus has the power to control nature, to control the world, to control even the storms of our lives. And all too often, even within the church, we doubt that Jesus has the power to hold back the forces of evil and night and to give us great hope in tomorrow. And this story, this miracle over wickedness and evil serves another purpose. It is a story of a man who in very many ways could not be more unlike you or me. We look at this story and we hear who this man is and he seems so different, so other, so odd. But at the same time, in revealing to us the power of Jesus in this man's life, we must come to grips with the fact that in very many ways we are like this man. We may live in a different time. We may have different clothing. But our lives and the pain and the sin and the need for hope are the same for us as they are for this man. We, like he, need a deliverer. And we long to see the power of the one who delivers. And so... This morning, I would like us to see three things that Luke unfolds for us about the deliverance of this man by the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that we will see is the main way in which we are like this man, that is, in the need for deliverance. Just like him, we need deliverance. The second thing we see is that that deliverance comes from a place and it comes from a person that is from Jesus. Jesus is the deliverer. And then the third thing that we see are people responding to deliverance. And this is a a challenge for us because we are faced with, with two options, with two choices, with two responses. How 
will we respond to the power and the majesty of Jesus? Well, let's begin then by looking at the need for deliverance. It's not difficult to see this man's need, is it? He is a man who is in bondage, in bondage to demons. But we have to understand the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in the big, but even in the small. Put yourself in the place of the disciples. Now, Luke tells us that they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now, how do they get here to the country of the Gerasenes? Well, what they do is they sail. On what body of water do they sail? The Sea of Galilee. What happened when they were on the Sea of Galilee? Well, if you're not sure, let your eyes wander up a few verses. Last night they were in the storm of their lives. And they thought they were going to die. The day before that they were involved in hectic work of ministry. And now they are about to set on the beach. And you can imagine they are tired. They are weary. They are sore. They are ready for a vacation. And as soon as the boat hits the shore, there's more work to be done. Jesus never shirks from work. You know, if you're anything like me, you have a, a litany that you go through about how busy your week is. And it just depends on, is it busy, busy? Is it really busy, busy? Or is it I can't think busy? And depending on that scale depends on how much you apologize to other people for it. But look at Jesus. No excuses. No waiting. He is focused upon the task and the person at hand. And as soon as they land on the shore, this man who is possessed by the demons rushes up to him. Now, I find this very interesting because... I would tend to think if if I were a demon and Jesus were coming, I would try and be very far away under a rock somewhere where I couldn't be found. But that's not what happens in the Bible. Have you noticed that Jesus is almost a demon magnet? That as soon as he comes, the demons are drawn. They don't know what to do. They're filled with fear, with hatred. But they know that Jesus is the person on whom the entire universe turns. And so this man comes up to Jesus, and imagine again that you are a disciple in the boat, and it becomes very obvious very quickly there is something wrong here. His appearance shows it. Picture in your mind's eye. He is a man who has lived for years outside of society. He is... Naked, he has no clothing. Sure, he's probably caked with mud in places. His hair is the worst hair day ever. His eyes are wild. His mannerisms are crazy. He is covered over with scabs and bruises because Mark tells us that in certain moments he gets the thought that he can get the demons out of him by cutting himself with stones. He's a mass of scab and blood and mud and disgustingness. His behavior just backs this up. 
He comes right up to Jesus and he is rude. He is wretched. There is absolutely nothing normal about this man. It is easy to look at him and say, this man is not as he should be. Luke gives us this picture so it becomes clear to us that when we are not what we should be, Jesus is all our hope. Because you see, if we are honest with ourselves, we are much better at hiding the fact that we are not as we should be from others. We not only have clothing, we press it. We not only don't have dirt, we put cologne. We do everything we can to give off the impression that everything is exactly as it should be and we are in complete control. And if we are honest with ourselves... The place where that temptation is strongest is in church. We wouldn't want anyone to think that we are out of control. That we think things we shouldn't. That we do things we shouldn't. But this is one of the ways in which we are more like this man than we think at first glance. The demons are in complete control of him. He has been so dragged out of humanity and society, he doesn't even have a name. Do you notice that? His only name is the description of the demons. The townspeople have already tried to help, but they are unable. They have seized the man and bound him with chains. And like some kind of circus strongman, he breaks the bound. You can imagine now, they don't even want to try and help. They just hope he stays as far away as possible. The demons have control over every aspect of this man's life. Now, we must be careful about one thing. It would be easy to look at this and to blame the demons for everything. That they're the cause of all his difficulties. That if they weren't there, he would be a fine, upstanding citizen. That he would not sin. That he would not do wickedness. And we have to understand that we must take responsibility for our sin. We may have demons that exacerbate our sin. We may have an illness or a mental condition that raises our sin to the front more than we would like. We may have weaknesses that cause us to fall into sin and make our sins worse. But at the end of the day, the only one who is responsible for our sin is us. This man opened the door. I don't know how. Pride, anger, lust. But he opened the door and the demons then began to rush in. And just as we might think of the Holy Spirit as one who allows peace and joy and gentleness to blossom in our lives, so the work of the devil and demons is to allow hatred and greed and anger to blossom in our lives. It is already there in our hearts. They just fan the flames. He's in great bondage. But more than that, as the hymn goes, he is in bondage, but he is also in sorrow and night. 
we get a very clear picture of Satan's desire and work with people. This man has been completely alienated from society. He has no community. He has no friends. He has no one to help him. He is more cut off than you could ever dream to be. And he's completely out of his mind. He's unable to think rationally. He is unable to come to good conclusions. And he's dangerous to himself and to others. Satan has enslaved him and is bringing out all of the worst in his life. Now, this is a very obvious slavery, isn't it? We would not be confused by looking upon this man and saying, you know, he really could get it all together rather quickly. No. But the point that we need to understand for ourselves is that slavery comes to us as well. Just not as obvious. We may not have a demon. We may not be crazy. We may not have hair all over the place. But we can be enslaved to our possessions. Can't we? Whether it's adults with cars or boats or homes. Or young people with Xboxes. And video games. Or sports. We can begin to see the things that we want and we long for as being the only things that have meaning, we can be captive to our sin. The other thing that this poor man shows us is that when we think of our sin, it is foolish to think of being in control of it. Do you think this man's in control of his voice, his gestures, his life? No, the truth from the Scripture is, is that we cannot control sin, it controls us. And as we indulge our sin, we may think we can stop at any time, we may think we can skirt the edges, but what happens is sin keeps sucking us in more and more and more and more. There is a dehumanizing effect about all of this. It is not... Coincidence that this man looks more like a beast than a person. The more we indulge ourselves, the more we are enslaved to sin, the less like a person we become because people are created in the image of God to give glory to Him. And the further we go from there, the more like beasts we become. Worst of all for this man, he was aware of of his situation and was powerless to stop it. Can you imagine the hopelessness that would come over him? Can you imagine the pain that he had to deal with? I think you can. Because if you're like me, there have been times in your life where you have felt powerless. And it brings hopelessness and pain Depression. We don't know where to go next. Where can we go? Well, for this man, where he goes is to Jesus. For Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus comes to this man, this man who is overcome by the power of evil, 
who has no hope, and we see first and foremost that there is no power that can have authority over Jesus. The demon knows who Jesus is. He knows Jesus' power. This is a successful demon. He has tormented this man for a long period of time, but now everything has changed. And what does he do? He begins by begging Jesus to leave him alone. Some kind of demon. Legion. Jesus, please leave me alone. Please go. Because the demon knows Jesus' power. And the demon tries to do tricks upon Jesus. He tries in vain to win and get authority and power over Jesus. Look at verse 28. He says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, when we first look at that, we may think the demon is speaking like we might speak. If we were to say that, it would be a confession of who Jesus is. We might even say, this demon seems smarter than the Pharisees. But the truth of the matter is, this is not a confession to the glory of Jesus. This is a Bible Times parlor trick. This is the sense in which, in those days... If you could name something, if you knew the secret name of something, you would gain some authority over it. We see this in places in the Bible. God makes His authority clear over Jacob by doing what? Changing His name to Israel. And so the demon here says, I'm going to try a frantic attempt to control you. This happens today, doesn't it? In the past month, how many times have you heard the words, Jesus Christ? Not on Sunday. My guess is, if your experience is like mine, it's used as an exclamation in a golf game. Or as a phrase of shock and alarm or disgust. You see, that's where our society has gone and is heading trying to co-opt the idea of Jesus to their own control and power and to make the name of Jesus worth nothing, to deny His power. And this is what the demon is doing. But Jesus will have none of it. Jesus asks him the same question. And there it's not a parlor trick. There it's the squeezing of a vice. What's your name? Legion. Some attempt to to take control again. I'm thousands. And not only that, Legion gives us the idea of a Roman army. That's where the word comes from. It is thousands of troops, well organized, well equipped. The demon is trying to say, don't mess with me, Jesus. I'm big. I'm effective. I'm powerful. You've got a battle on your hand. And the irony is, right after he gives this bravado, he begins begging Jesus. You see that? It's all bravado. And this teaches us that there is absolutely no power in the world like Jesus. None. All others are pretenders. 
All of the powers and principalities that you believe or you are afraid are arrayed against you now today have nothing on Jesus. We might put it in a a very vernacular way. If Jesus is in your corner, it doesn't matter what you face. Because there is no power like Jesus. Jesus comes in, He takes control, He seizes authority over this demon. He is unstoppable. Now imagine how we would have reacted in this situation. Imagine if right now those doors opened and our demoniac walked in. I'm guessing we wouldn't gather in groups and say, this is a wonderful opportunity for evangelism. I'm sure he hasn't heard the gospel. What books do you think we could recommend to him? That's, that would be good at a Reformed church, right? We'd send him off with a library card and a half dozen books. No, we would try and ignore him, hope that he just went away on his own, and if he didn't, find a deacon. Psst, I think you could take him out. But do you notice how Jesus reacts? The disciples have got to be quaking in their boots. Jesus is a picture of calm, just like He was in the storm. He's not flapped by the storms of life. He is not flapped by the wickedness of evil. He stares evil straight in the face. He's in complete control. He is not thinking of the fear. He is not thinking even of the demon. The only thing that Jesus is thinking about is this poor man who is made in the image of God and who needs the grace and power of God. That's a wonderful story, isn't it? It's true in your life. Jesus isn't focused on your illness. Jesus isn't focused on the struggles of your marriage. Jesus isn't focused on the anger and disappointment between parents and children. Jesus is focused on you. And on showing you His power. And showing you what He not only can, but will do to defeat wickedness. Not just out there, but in here. Jesus is bigger than anything you are afraid of. He proves it here in spectacular fashion. Jesus is the one who has power and He is the one who is the judge. He gives us a foretaste of this. Some commentators get themselves all wrapped up about why did Jesus let the demons go into the pigs? We need to call the animal rights groups. He let all these poor pigs die. And then other people say, oh, well, you know, there was Old Testament laws. They weren't supposed to have pigs. He was just taking care of the pigs. No. What's going on here is the demons say, don't send us into the abyss. Don't judge us now. Spare us from judgment. And Jesus says, not only are you not spared from judgment, I'm going to show judgment to everyone from all time that I am in control and I am the judge. And he gives an absolutely vivid picture of what it looks like to be judged for wickedness and destroyed. And do you see it here? It's falling headlong into destruction. Who causes the destruction? The demons. They're their own destruction. Jesus just simply speaks the sentence of judgment. 
Jesus is powerful. He is authoritative. He is the judge. And this can be good for us. Kids, young ladies, there are actually times when being scared is good. Not when you think there are monsters under your bed. Not after a bad movie. But it is good to be scared of judgment and hell. It is a good thing. It is something that tells us that in the very nature of our being, things are wrong. And ignoring it won't help. The judgment is still there. Turning on the lights doesn't help. Whistling doesn't help. The judgment is always there before us. If you are going through life right now thinking that you can dodge and weave, that you can escape the judgment, that you don't need to worry about God, that somehow these things will never happen to you, you must know that you are wrong. The Scriptures speak of a judgment that is inexorable. It will always come. It is inescapable. The only way to avoid the judgment is to meet and kiss the judge. The one who has all power. The one who has power to save by a word. King Jesus. He is the deliverer. He is the only deliverer. And He is the able deliverer. How should we respond then? The pastor speaks of Jesus. He gets emotional. He waves his arms like a crazy Italian and yells. But how will you respond? We see the response to deliverance here in our text. Two responses. The first we see is one that is blinded by fear. How would we expect the townspeople to react to this? We might expect relief. Now we don't have to worry about the crazy guy anymore. He won't be breaking chains and attacking the kids. We might expect joy from his former friends and family that he's finally been released. We might even expect wonder at a work beyond anything they could ever do. But what do we get? They run away. Do you see that in verse 37? They're afraid. They're afraid for their things. They care more about a bunch of pigs than a man made in God's image. Does this sound familiar to you? If it doesn't, go out and find how someone will tell you you have a moral obligation to save a snail. But children should be butchered in the womb. This is where we are. You see, you'd think just seeing Jesus would be enough, but just seeing Jesus is not enough. You must believe Him. You must want Him. You must place your faith and trust in Him. You see, they react, ironically, the same way the demon did. What do they say to Jesus? We're afraid of you. Get out of here. 
They react the same way that the demons do. You see, for them, true freedom is about control. It's not about freedom in Christ. And they don't want Jesus there. They see what He has done, and they say to themselves, He's going to tell us what to do next week. He's going to tell us things we should buy, and things we should eat, and things we should do, and how we should talk, and we don't want it. Get out of here, Jesus. And if we're not careful, that's what we say. We say, well, it's all well and good. But I don't want to have somebody be my boss. And we try and send Jesus packing. And what we see here in the Bible is one of the most frightening things in a story. They tell Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you. And you know what he does? He leaves. He leaves them to themselves and their own destruction. Now, how does this contrast with the man? The man, instead, is blessed by freedom. What a contrast. He has been changed in every way by Jesus. He is no longer oppressed by the demon. He is no longer agitated. His restless soul has been calmed. He is now in his right mind and can think. And he is seated at the feet of Jesus, longing to be with him and to learn more from him. This is the picture of what Jesus does for His people. He takes us out of the power and kingdom of Satan and brings us in to His kingdom. He brings us to sit at His feet to hear from Him in His Word. He gives us our right mind so that we can see how destructive sin is and how it destroys our lives, our relationships, and our very souls. This is a picture If you've come here this morning and you don't know about Jesus, but you know a lot about problems, you know a lot about oppression, you know a lot about things that run through your mind that you don't know how you're going to get through, then you need to know that Jesus has the power to set you free. If you come to Him, you have freedom from sin. Freedom from darkness, freedom from the enemy. It doesn't mean your life will be perfect. But it means you can look at life with eyes of hope, with eyes that have been changed, knowing that Jesus and His power are for you. If you have known the Lord Jesus for years, you need to know another thing. That Jesus not only can set you free, but He has. And you need to stop living like you're in a cell. Live free in Christ. Do not be weighed down with the fears and anxieties of the world. Jesus is more than able. Do not fear the future. Jesus not only knows, but He holds the future. Do not fear others. For Jesus has brought you into His kingdom to give you Himself and to give you community. We are saved by Jesus that we might serve Him and go forward. This is what He does with the man, isn't it? This man is finally in his right mind and he begs Jesus that he might be with Him forever. And Jesus says, no. Go home. Start there. 
it's ironic, this is a good lesson for Father's Day. Fathers, don't dream of Timbuktu. Don't dream of grandiose missions in Australia, Norway, Japan. Start at home. Tell the glories of God there. Now, I'm not saying you should never go to Japan. I'm not saying you should never go to Norway. But start at home. You see, he begins to go out and to share what Jesus has done. And there's this wonderful thing that we see at the conclusion. Jesus tells him, tell what God has done for you. Do you see that in verse 39? And what does the man do? He tells everyone what Jesus has done for him. He's made the connection. He's seen the power and he knows that Jesus has all of this power and all of this authority because he is God himself. That's who the Jesus of the demoniac is. That's also your Jesus. He has done all of this for us. He has covered our nakedness with His righteousness. He has put us in our right minds so that now we know who we truly are. He has given us a community. If Jesus has done so much for you, how can you not tell of the great things that He has done? 